0: Chapter 11 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter 11 A Wonderful Achievement. Rawlins knew he could rely on his fellow countrymen but at first he hesitated to say anything to the four Hollanders. At last, however, he found them anxious to join in with the scheme, and his next effort was equally successful, for he undermined the English renegado Gunner and three more his associates. Last of all, the Dutch renegados of the Gunner Room were won over and persuaded by the four Hollanders. The secret had been well kept, and Rollins resolved that, during the captain's morning watch, he would make the attempt. Now, where the English slaves lay in the gunroom, there were always four or five crowbars of iron hanging up. When the time was approaching when the mutiny should take place, Rollins was in the act of taking down his iron crowbar, when he had the misfortune to make such a noise with it, that it woke up the Turkish soldiers, and they, in alarm, roused the other Moslems. Everything was in pitch darkness, and it was uncertain as to what would happen. Presently, the Turkish boatswain came below with a candle, and searched all the parts of the ship where the slaves were lying, but he found nothing suspicious other than the crowbar, which had apparently slipped down. He then went and informed the captain, who merely remarked that there was nothing to cause uneasiness, as the crowbar not infrequently slipped down. But with this unlucky beginning, Rawlins deemed it best to postpone the undertaking for the present. He had intended, with the aid of his friends, knife in hand, to press upon the gunner's breast and the other English renegados, and either force them to help or else to cut their throats. "'Die or consent, this was to be the prevailing force, "'and the watchword was to be, "'For God and King James, and St. George for England.'" In the meantime, the exchange continued on her northerly voyage, farther and farther away from the coast of Barbary. Still cautious but keen, Rawlins went about the ship's company, and now had persuaded the gunners and the other English renegades to fall in with his project. This was one of the riskiest moments of his enterprise, but it resulted that there were reciprocal oaths taken and hands given to preserve loyalty to each other. Yet, once again, was Rollins to be disappointed. For after the renegado gunner had solemnly sworn secrecy, he went up the hatchway on deck for a quarter of an hour, after which he returned to Rollins' in the gunner room then to rolland's surprise in came an infuriated turk with his knife drawn this he presented in a menacing manner to rolland's body the latter cleverly feigning innocence inquired what was the matter and whether it was the turk's intention to kill him to this the turk answered no master be not afraid i think he doth but jest but it was clear to Rollins that the other man had broken his compact and rounded on him. So, drawing back, Rollins drew out his own knife, and also stepped towards the gunner's side, so that he was able to snatch the knife from the gunner's sheath. The Turk, seeing that now the Englishman had two knives to his one, threw down his weapon, protesting that all the time he had been joking. The gunner also whispered in Rawlins's ear that he had never betrayed the plan, nor would he do such a thing. However, Rawlins thought otherwise, and kept the two knives with him all the night. Very ingenious was the way in which this Rollins was weaving his net gradually but surely around the ship. He succeeded in persuading the captain to head for Cape Finestere, pretending that thereabouts they would be likely to come upon a ship to be pillaged. This was perfectly true, though the Englishman's intention was to get the exchange farther and farther from the Straits of Gibraltar so that it became less and less likely that the Corsairs would send out reinforcements. On the 6th of February, when about 36 miles off the Cape, a sail was descried. The exchange gave chase and came up with her, making her strike all her sails, whereby we knew her to be a bark belonging to Torbay, near Dartmouth. She was laden with a cargo of salt, and her crew consisted of nine men and a boy. But it came on bad weather, so the exchange did not then launch her boat, but ordered the Torbay ship to let down her boat. Her master, with five men and the boy, now rode off to the exchange, leaving behind his mate and two men in the bark. The Turkish captain now sent ten Moslems to man her. Now among these ten were two Dutch and one English renegados, who were of our confederacy. Just as the latter were about to hoist out their boat from the exchange, Rollins was able to have a hurried conversation with them. He quickly warned them it was his intention that night, or the next, to put his plan into action, and he advised these men to inform the mate and two men of the Torbay bark of this plot, and then make for England, bearing up the helm whilst the Turks slept and suspected no such matter. Rawlins reminded them that in his first watch, about midnight, he would show them a light by which the men on the bark might know that the plan was already in action. So the boat was let down from the exchange and rowed off to the Torbay bark. The Confederates then told the mate of their intention, and he entirely approved of the plan, though at first amazed by its ingenuity. The fact was that the idea was really much simpler than was at first apparent. Being sailors, the English had the helm of the ship, for the Turks, being only soldiers and ignorant of sea affairs, could not say whether their vessel were sailing in the direction of Algiers or in the opposite direction. They knew nothing of navigation and practically nothing of seamanship. So they were, in spite of all their brutality, more at the mercy of the Christians than they had realized. But, resolved the plotters, if by any chance these Moslems should guess that the ship was sailing away from Algiers, then they would at once cut the Turks' throats and then throw their bodies overboard. It will be remembered that the master and some of the Torbay Bark's crew were now in the exchange— and Rollins made it his business to approach these men tactfully and ask them to share in the plan. This they resolved to do. So far, so good. Now, the number of Turks had been gradually diminishing since the beginning of the cruise. For, first of all, nine Turks and one English slave had been sent back to Algiers with the Polaka Prize— and now some more had been sent off to the Torbay Bark. Had the exchange's captain fully realized how seriously he was diminishing the strength of his own force, he could scarcely have done such a foolish thing. But, throughout the whole plot, he was, without ever suspecting it, being fooled by a clever schemer. Rollins had all the tact and foresight of a diplomatist combined with the ability to know when to strike and the power to strike hard. And all this time, while the captain himself was diminishing the number of Moslems and simultaneously adding to the number of Englishmen by the arrival of the Torbay ship, Rollins, in the most impudent manner, was going about the ship, winning everyone except the Turkish soldiers over to his side one knows not which to admire most, his wonderful courage or his consummate skill. For had he made one single error in reposing confidence in the wrong man, the death of the Englishman would have been both certain and cruel. And the following step in Rollins' diplomatic advance was even more interesting still. When morning came again, it was now the 7th of February, the Torbay prize was quite out of sight. This annoyed the captain of the exchange intensely, and he began both to storm and to swear. He commanded Rollins to search the seas up and down, but there was not a vestige of the bark. She was beyond the horizon. In course of time, the captain abated his wrath and remarked that no doubt he would see her again in Algiers and that all would be well. This remark rather worried Rollins, as he began to fear the captain would order the exchange to return to the Straits of Gibraltar. But Rawlins did not allow himself to worry long, and proceeded below, down into the hold. Here he found that there was a good deal of water in the bilges, which could not be sucked up by the pump. He came on deck and informed the captain the latter naturally asked how this had come about, that the pump would not discharge this, and Rollins explained that the ship was too much down by the head and needed to have more weight aft to raise her bows more out of the water. He therefore ordered Rollins to get the ship trimmed properly. The captain was swallowing the bait most beautifully. Presently he would be hooked Rollins explained that we must quit our cables and bring four pieces of ordnance further aft, and that would cause the water to flow to the pump. The captain, being quite ignorant of the ways of a ship, ordered these suggestions to become orders, and so two of the guns, which usually were forward, were now brought with their mouths right before the binnacle. In the ship were three decks, Rawlins and his mates of the gunner room were warned to be ready to break up the lower deck, and the English slaves, who always lay in the middle deck, were likewise told to watch the hatchways. Rawlins himself persuaded the gunner to let him have as much powder as would prime the guns, and quietly warned his confederates to begin the mutiny as soon as ever the gun was fired when they were to give a wild shout and hand on the password. The time appointed for the crisis was 2 p.m., and about that time, Rollins advised the master gunner to speak to the captain that the soldiers might come on the poop deck and so bring the ship's bows more out of the water and cause the pump to work better. To this suggestion, the captain readily agreed. So 20 turkish soldiers came aft to the poop while 5 or 6 of the confederates stole into the captain's cabin and brought away various weapons and shields after that rollins and his assistants began to pump the water later on having made every preparation and considered all details in order to avoid suspicion the members of the gunner room went below and the slaves in the middle deck went about their work in the usual way. Then, the nine English slaves and John Rawlins, the five men and one boy from the Torbay Bark, the four English renegades, the two Dutch, and the four Hollanders, lifting up our hearts in thanks to God for the success of the business, set to work on the final act of the cleverly conceived plot. About noon, Rowe and Davis were ordered by Rollins to prepare their matches, while most of the Turks were on the poop weighing down the stern to bring the water to the pump. The two men came with the matches, and at the appointed time, Rowe fired one of the guns, which caused a terrific explosion. Immediately, this was followed by wild cheering on the part of the Confederates. The explosion broke down the binnacle and compasses, and the soldiers were amazed by the cheering of the Christian slaves. And then they realized what had happened, that there had been a mutiny, that the ship had been surprised. The Turks were mad with fury and indignation. Calling the mutineers dogs, they began to tear up planks of the ship and to attack the Confederates with hammers, hatchets, knives. Boat's oars, boat hook, and whatever came into their hands. Even the stones and bricks of the cook room or galley were picked up and hurled at Rollins' party. But the carefully arranged plot was working out perfectly. Below, the slaves had cleared the decks of all the Turks and Moors, and Rawlin's now sent a guard to protect the powder, and the Confederates charged their muskets against the remaining Turks, "'killing some of them on the spot. "'The Moslems, who had been such tyrannical taskmasters, "'now actually called for Rollins, "'so he, guarded by some of his adherents, went to them. "'The latter fell on their knees and begged for mercy, "'who had shown no mercy to others. "'Rollins knew what he was about, "'and after these tyrants had been taken one by one, "'he caused them to be killed,' while other Turks leapt overboard, remarking that it was the chance of war. Others were manacled and then hurled overboard. Some more had yet to be killed outright, and then at length the victory and annihilation were complete. By careful plotting and good organization, and a firmness at the proper time, the whole scheme had been an entire success. It happened that when the explosion had taken place, the captain was in his cabin writing and at once rushed out. But when he saw the Confederates and how matters stood and that the ship was already in other hands, he at once surrendered and begged for his life. He reminded Rollins how he had redeemed him from Villa Rise and that he had since treated him with great consideration. Rollins had to admit that this was so, so he agreed to spare the captain his life. As before mentioned, the captain was an English renegade, whose real name was Henry Chandler, he being the son of a Chandler in Southwark. So this man was brought back to England, as well as John Goodale, Richard Clark, gunner alias Jafar in Turkish, George Cook, gunner's mate alias ramadam in turkish john brown alias mamme in turkish and william winter ship's carpenter alias mustafa in turkish besides all the slaves and hollanders with other renegados who were willing to be reconciled to their true savior as being formerly seduced with the hopes of riches honor preferment and such-like devilish baits to catch the souls of mortal men and entangle frailty in the terriers of horrible abuses and imposturing deceit. The Englishmen now set to work and cleared the ship of the dead Moslem bodies, and then Rawlins assembled his men and gave praise to God, using the accustomed service on shipboard and, for want of books, lifted up their voices to God as he put into their hearts or renewed their memories. And after having sung a psalm, they embraced each other for playing the men in such a deliverance. The same night, they washed the ship of the carnage, put everything in order, repaired the broken quarter which had been damaged by the explosion, set up the binnacle again, and made for England. On the 13th February, the exchange arrived at Plymouth, where they were welcomed like the recovery of the lost sheep, or, as you read of a loving mother, that runneth with embraces to entertain her son from a long voyage and escape of many dangers. As for the Torbay bark, she too had got back to England, having arrived at Penzance two days before, Her story is brief, but not less interesting. The mate had been informed of Rowland's plan, and he and his friends had agreed. But the carrying out of this had been a far simpler and neater matter than that which had taken place on the exchange. For, once again, mere landsmen had been fooled at the hands of seamen. It happened on this wise. They made the Turks believe that the wind had now come fair, and that the prize was being sailed back to Algiers. This they believed, until they sighted the English shore, when one of the Turks remarked that, That land is not like Cape St. Vincent. To this the man at the helm replied very neatly, Yes, and if you will be contented and go down into the hold and turn the salt over to Windward, whereby the ship may bear full sail, you shall know and see more to-morrow." Suspecting nothing, the five Turks then went quietly down, but as soon as they had gone below into the hold, the Renegados, with the help of two Englishmen, nailed down the hatches and kept the rascals there till they reached Penzance. But one of the other Turks was on deck, and at this incident he broke out into great rage. This was but short-lived, for an Englishman stepped up to him, "'dashed out his brains and threw his body overboard. "'All the other prisoners were brought safely to England "'and lodged either in Plymouth jail or Exeter, "'either to be arraigned according to the punishment of delinquents in that kind, "'or disposed of as the king and council shall think meet. "'We need not stop to imagine the joy of welcoming back men "'who had been lost in slavery,' we need not try to guess the delight of the West countrymen that at last some of these renegados had been brought back to be punished in England. There is not the slightest doubt of this story of the exchange being true, but it shows that even in that rather disappointing age, which followed on immediately after the defeat of the Armada, there were, at a time when maritime matters were under a cloud, not wanting English seamen of the right stamp, men of courage and action, men who could fight and navigate a ship as in the spacious days of Queen Elizabeth. Happily, the type of man which includes such sailor characters as Rollins is not yet dead. The Anglo-Saxon race still rears many of his caliber, and it needs only the opportunity to display such nerve, daring enterprise, and tactful action. End of chapter 11. Recording by Linda Johnson.